0: We're returning to our look at the story of Jonah this morning and uh, we have arrived at the point where Jonah goes to Nineveh. The word came to Jonah a first time uh, and he uh, ran and now the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time and this time he complies. So we are with Jonah as he walks into Nineveh speaking the word of the Lord and what happens. Uh, Let's look together and we'll find out. Jonah chapter 3. Verses 1 through 10, hear the word of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breath. Fierce anger, so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning, uh, that our hearts would... uh, be invigorated in your presence, that you would animate us by your goodness, that you would help us as we hear from your word and seek to learn from it. I uh, pray that it wouldn't be me speaking, but that it would be you speaking to us and th- the things that we need to hear from this passage. And I pray you would help me, your servant, to serve these friends well, to love them and to love you. Let every, let every word I speak be in fidelity to these words that you have given to us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So in early February of this year, news began to leak out across the country that something very special was happening at a small Christian university, Asbury University in, uh, in rural Kentucky. Uh, you probably heard about this. It's Wilmore, Kentucky, just outside Lexington. It started one Wednesday evening, and, and, and uh, they have a chapel service. Uh, as usual on Wednesday nights on campus. And uh, you can go on uh, and look at the service that preceded what happened. The, and, and everything looks very, very normal. Uh, they sang worship songs together. Uh, a man stood up and he preached the gospel out of Romans 12. And, and he was very warm, and engaging. He had a warm ethos. He seemed like somebody these students liked. He he. Uh, one person used the word unpre- unprepossessing to describe uh, the way he was with them. I thought that was perfect. He stood up and he said, hi y'all, my name's Zach and I'm back. That's what, that's what he said. And then he preached on Romans 12. He gave a law gospel message and he said, that, uh, that every act of love, if we seek to, to live a life of love, it must come from an understanding of just how much we are loved by God. I mean, everything seemed normal, just like they do every week. And then the service was over, and it was time for everybody to leave. It seemed normal, and it seemed over, except nothing about it was normal, and nothing was over. The students, instead of leaving the chapel service, they stayed. And they got on their knees and they began praying prayers of repentance. And they were praying together. They were confessing sins together. They were reading scripture together. They just kept going. And days turned into weeks. And pictures of this splashed across the internet, and many of you probably remember this. We were all looking it up, like, what in the world is going on over there at Asbury University? Those, that was the question we were asking, like, what is the Lord up to? Is it real? Is it genuine? And if it is genuine, what what makes it genuine? And, and, and people began arguing. I mean, there was like one blog or article after another about what exactly to call this special thing that was going on. I, is this a revival? Some people didn't like that word. Like, well, what constitutes a revival? Like there were all these arguments going back and forth. And I got a little tired of the word wrangling, I'll uh, confess. Uh, and I wouldn't say that fascination with this is a bad thing in itself, but, but I will say it's hardly satisfying. Uh, but what is fundamentally good is a desire to Understand what the Lord might be up to in that place, what the Holy Spirit might be doing with those people. And I say all that because when we look at a passage like this one in Jonah chapter 3, we ask a lot of the similar questions. Like what exactly is going on over there in Nineveh? What happened? And how did it come about? Like what what were the things that led up to, to what we see here in this passage? And why is it important to us? Why is it recorded in Scripture and given to us as something to look at? Those are the questions I want to ask this morning. What happened? How did it come about? And why it should be important to us? First, what happened? Jonah goes into Nineveh, and what do you see? Well, in short, a city repents. Like, a whole city. A whole city repents. Can you imagine the blog posts that would, be, that would be written about this? You look at this passage, and you don't necessarily see the word repentance in the story, but all the elements of what repentance looks like are included in this story. I'll run them through with you. First, you see expressions of humility among the people. Expressions of humility abound from the people putting on sackcloth, to the king. That is a big deal for the king to remove his royal robes and sit in ashes. All of those are expressions of deep grief and deep humility for their sin. They also express complete surrender to God, even naming some of their sin before him. Verse 8, it says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands, you get the impression that when God's words of judgment come to them, they're not at a loss for why that would be. In fact, they understand them. They even name them and say, "There is evil on our account. That 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 uh, that we are working violence in our very midst." And uh, and none of this this is important. None of this is said with an with a um, with a heart that's looking to manipulate God. In fact, what they're expressing is uh, complete surrender to God. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe God will hear this and turn and relent. It's all, all an expression of some kind of faith in this passage. Verse 5, it says, They... Uh, the, the people of Nineveh believed God. So they heard this word of the Lord. Listen, Jonah spoke, but what they heard was the word of the Lord. And that word believe is actually a really important one in the Bible. It it indicates a personal trust. It's a very personal word. You find it in, in Genesis chapter 15. It says Abraham, or Abram at the time, Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's the, uh, that's the same word that's being used here. And so whenever we talk about repentance, and I know repentance is a word that we can kind of throw around a little bit, but sometimes we don't exactly know what it means. Well, I'll tell you that this is what we're talking about. This is an example of corporate Repentance. When we confessed our sins earlier in the service, that was us engaging in an act of repentance before the Lord. It's rooted in faith. It humbly names our sins with the desire to turn from them and uh, entrusting our whole selves in complete surrender to God. That's what we see in this passage. That's really what repentance is. And you see strikingly similar, one of the things that's interesting about this is you see strikingly similar versions of this story in other places in the Bible where it's God's people engaging in corporate repentance like this, but it follows the same pattern. And here are the people of Nineveh, enemies of God, now engaging in the exact same thing. It's just fascinating. And uh, and but not only does it include all the elements of repentance, what's fascinating here, I think, and worthy of note, is just how comprehensive it is. Like it seems like the narrator of the story is trying to drill that down for us deeply. Just how uh, widespread this work of repentance was being done across the entire city of Nineveh claims that every single person, even naming the king, it says, from the greatest of these to the least of these, we're all engaging in this action. And, and it even includes animals. Now, what is that about? Did anybody like hear that and think, what in the world is going on here? Animals, like let's dress our animals up in sackcloth and, uh, and deprive them from food. You know, what, what is going on here? Well, as you might imagine, there are a lot of theories about that, but most seem to think, and I think it's most reasonable, it, to just say that it, it really seems to give credence to just how deeply they felt the weight of their sin and the gravity of the repentance, the scope of repentance necessary for the things that they have done, that the, the, it's really meant to demonstrate something of the, the gravity of their response, that they included their animals. And when you look at this story... You might ask the question, I mean, we've spent the last two weeks mentioning just how, um, just how brutal the Assyrian people were in, eighth century, in the 8th century Near East, just how violent they were, how, how violently oppressive they were, especially against God's people, uh, how wayward, how far away they were. Like, aren't, weren't we talking about complete, a completely morally depraved and violent people? And the answer to that is yes. That it very much is the history that they brought in that preceded this great uh, event of repentance that spread across the whole city. So the gravity of our awareness of their sin, I think, only increases our appreciation for just the depth of repentance that we see here in this passage. I mean, it's truly amazing. This is high drama in Nineveh. And it's nothing less than a spiritual event in their city of just extreme significance. Now, listen, I'm far from an expert on these things, okay? I haven't, I haven't spent a ton... Of, by that, I mean I just haven't spent a ton of time examining special works of the Spirit in our midst or revivals or anything like what, what is all that. But I can say that whenever they occur right at the center of them are acts of repentance. Tim Keller was writing about this passage. He mentioned a Bible conference in 1907 in Pyongyang. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but in Pyongyang, what's now the capital of North Korea, they gathered for a conference, a Bible conference, but what they experienced was truly revival. And when it happened, uh, it says that those who were attending came under a deep conviction of sin. And what led up to it was uh, every account of the story said that what led up to it was just a simple presentation of the gospel of grace. But a young Korean pastor stood up and spoke to them and told them that before God, they all stand equally sinful and condemned and yet rescued by the costly grace of Jesus And they were convicted of their sin. And what happened next was that they were drained of all bitterness and pride. And they returned home and set to work repairing relationships. And repenting and forgiving each other for the things they'd done against each other. And the result was was another spiritual event of extreme significance. It says the church in Korea was renewed. And and, uh, their worship was uh had a had a strange new power to them that's what the accounts say and the church at the time experienced explosive growth just to to lay it in front of you um <clears throat> the methodist church in korea in the early 1900s doubled in size in a, in one year now listen when you hear stories like that what do you, what, what comes to your mind like seriously, when you think about this, when you think about a story like what we see in Nineveh where a whole city repents or a story like what happened in Pyongyang or what happened in Asbury University or when we consider the, the, the great awakenings in our, in our country's history, I mean, like what, you, what comes to mind? Well, you know, some, some of us are going to view those things with skepticism, And I I will say that there are going to be times when skepticism is warranted. Like, this is not something we can manufacture, okay? But for us who really, truly believe that God is not far from us, and that the Holy Spirit goes blows where he wishes, and works where he sees fit, and is at work right now in the world in profound ways it should at least make us want to know more. And the, and, and the question we should ask is, how, how did this come about? What preceded all of these things? And how did this come about in Nineveh? What power might have been at work that led to such a thing happening? Well, the story makes it clear that the word of the Lord... That phrase gets repeated over and over again in the story. The word of the Lord was the fundamental agent at work in the story. And, and, and that first verse, it can be really easy to run over that phrase. The word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. It's known as a prophetic formula that the word, God gives his word to a prophet and then sends the prophet to people to give His word to them, okay, but it's it's a it's a phrase of extreme importance, and it's almost verbatim to the first verse in the in the book. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, and then in verse two it says that Jonah arose and went according to the word of the Lord. So the like the thing that's at work in their midst, not just in Jonah but in the city of Nineveh, is this word of the Lord. And then what happens? In response to the word of the Lord, an entire city hears it, and they respond. And then in going on to verse 6, it says the same thing about the king. This word reached the king of Nineveh. And so what it's telling us here is that the word of the Lord is this tidal power that moved both Jonah and the Ninevites. It's the word of the Lord that was at work in both of them. And it's like the author of the book wants to give you a sense for just how powerful the word of the Lord is, not only by repeating it over and over again, but by describing how it worked. Did you see that it included in the story uh, uh, something of like, it takes three days to cross Nineveh and Jonah went through it about a day. Uh, look, verse 3, Jonah goes into the city speaking the word of the Lord. Now it says, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. And that word great means that it was important to God. And, uh, and it was three days journey in breadth. In now verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. Only about a third of the way through is the way you could read that. Now, listen, we know how big Nineveh was, okay? This is fascinating. Like, we know a lot. Uh, we, we actually know a lot about Nineveh. We know about um, uh, when it was founded and who founded it. Uh, we also know how big it became because we've excavated the city. Like, we know the city walls. And, and it has been measured, the interior dimensions of the city. And it, came, it comes out to about 1,850 acres, okay? That's how big like that's the square footage of the of the city, or about three square miles. Now listen, here's the point I'm trying to make. Ain't no way. There ain't no way it takes three days to walk across a three-mile city. What is going on in this passage? I better be able to get across that city in the morning, right? And be back by dinner. What is going on? Well, some people think that this. Verse is indicating that Jonah's the scope of Jonah's mission also includes greater Nineveh, uh, the, even the villages surrounding Nineveh, and that might be possible. But what most people seem to think when they look at this passage is they think it would require about three days to go street to street carrying a message in order to saturate the whole city with the with the message that you're bringing. And the point that it seems this narrator is making is that Jonah walked about a third of the city and that's really all that was needed for the word of the Lord to go forward. That it it went forward ahead of him, street to street and house to house and people were convicted all the way to the palace and so they heard and believed and confessed their sin and I mention all of that because what's important that we see is that there's hardly any mention of Jonah's abilities as an order, right? Like hardly, hardly any of this story is devoted to Jonah and what he did, okay? Um, it's not like, it looks like he just went into the city, starts speaking whatever God gave him to speak. And that, that seems to be a good thing because we've already seen what happens when Jonah has an overdeveloped sense of agency, right? Like what is the agent? at work in this passage. It is the power, the tidal power that the word of the Lord has as it go for, goes forward interacting with people with their hearts and their minds. There is something incredibly powerful about the work of the word of the Lord. And I don't think we can overstate how important that phrase is. The word of the Lord it's a phrase of great importance in the Bible. Remember, the Bible begins with God speaking words into nothing and his words, the word of his power, creating the world. And it ends with Jesus saying, beatific words from a throne room. I owe some... Uh, some um, I owe some thanks to a man named Greg Thompson for this insight about this, but he talks about how we should read this phrase. He says, the word of the Lord is a creating word. It's a word that brings things into being. It's an ordering word that dissolves chaos and places things into right relationship with each other. Listen, the word of the Lord is a naming word. It gives things their true identity and tells them what and who they are. It's a confronting word that resists all that is ugly and destructive and violent. The word of the Lord is a rescuing word that delivers the world from sin and death. And the word of the Lord is a promising word that assures us in times of distress that salvation comes. And in the end, the word of the Lord is a recreating word that actually makes all things new. The word of the Lord is serious. When you see that phrase, it is serious business because it is beautiful and it is powerful. So when you see it, it means that salvation is coming. Listen, when you see the word of the Lord, it's not a literary moment. What it is is it's a saving moment. The word of the Lord comes to save, it's a description of a redemptive moment. And this is important for us because I will say, and I don't think all. I'm alone in this, but I think we spend all our days surrounded by words. From the day we get out of bed to the day we lay our head back down on the pillow, we are giving and receiving words, words written, words spoken. And even when we're silent, what are we thinking about? We're thinking about words. Words said to us, Things we've said, things we may have wished we had said. Some of our deepest wounds have words attached to them, do they not? It can get easy to get lost in a murky fog of words. And the question that's before us is, is there a word? Is there a word that stands out? Is there a word that guides? Is there a word that rescues Is there a word that allows all the other words to fade into the background? Is there a word? Where are the words that guide us in life? There was a dark moment in Jesus' ministry. People were leaving him. Oppression from opposition from the religious establishment was growing. And he looked at his disciples and he said, Do you want to go away too? And Peter looked at him and said, where else would we go? You have the words of life. The apostle John was present when he said it, and later he would write that Jesus doesn't just have the words of life, that he is the word of life. He said, when Jesus came to be with us, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The rescuing, naming, confronting saving word comes to us in Jesus Christ. He is the one who by his power, all things are held together. He is the one who was with the Father and the Holy Spirit when words were spoken forth and the world was created. He is the one who promises salvation through faith in him. He's the one who recreates, who spoke those words from the throne saying, behold, behold, I am making all things new. Jesus is that word. Amidst all the other words that we're immersed in, he is the word that holds us. In faith and in hope, he is the redemptive word of God given to us that holds us in faith and in hope. That is why this is so important to us. Because we are witnessing the power of the word of the Lord going to work amongst people and what is it doing? It's confronting them in their sin, and it's the word of Jesus that not only confronts us and calls us to repentance, and Him in repentance. And boy, do we have things to confess, don't we? Like if we're honest with ourselves, we will never run out of things to confess before the Lord, right? Humility amongst God's people that we're able to say things like that out loud, and, and I don't know about you. But but often the experience uh, of many of us is simply that I I feel like I'm confessing the same sin over, over and over and over again. And the truth is, is that all of our lives are lived out in repentance. It's just something we have to get in our heads. All of life is lived in Repentance. Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95 theses to the door, and some people think that's what kicked off the Reformation, the door of the Wittenberg Chapel, the very first thing he wrote was, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Now, does that sound like happy fun time? I mean, you might be looking at me thinking, boy, Charles, you're really making the life of the Christian sound fun. But I will say that, in a curious and fantastic way, that the place of repentance is often the place where we actually find our joy. Because every time we confess our sins, we are also confessing our hope that Jesus has already answered our sins, they are covered with his sacrifice on the cross. And listen, joy is the only byproduct of that. One person said, repentance is how we tap into the joy of our union with Christ. The more you see your own sin, the more electrifying and amazing God's grace appears to you. It's when we repent that we are reminded of just how deep God's grace runs for you. And not just for you, but also for the person next to you. If God's kindness leads us to repentance, it's the love of Jesus that comforts us when we get there. Just by way of closure, I think it's important that when we think about what, whatever the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call what the Holy Spirit was up to at Asbury University, we remember that joyful and repenting college students laid right at the heart of it. You know, the Holy Spirit loves to make Jesus famous. That's like, that's like his job description. Is that he He's always pointing to Jesus. And one of the ways he does that is simply through the lips of his repenting people as they throw themselves on the grace of Jesus that's given to them. There's a pastor in our denomination. Uh, he's a great guy. I don't know him well. He has no idea who I am, but... Um, he he pastored a church in Lexington, Kentucky for many many years. Uh, he still lives up there, and he went and visited Asbury when uh, when uh, this uh, awakening or out, whatever it is was going on. People were asking it; they were reaching out and asking him, hey, is this serious? Is it genuine? Like, how am I supposed to think about this? And, uh, and he's a good guy. He, he really knows a lot of people across the denominational spectrum. And he went to go look out and he called himself, I am the local reformed curmudgeon pastor is what he called himself. And I actually don't think he's curmudgeonly at all. I've never, I don't know anybody who's ever experienced him that way, but this is what he said he saw. He said it was nothing like what we think of when we think about the great revivals in our history. Okay? When he walked into the chapel, he said he was impressed by the reverence and the solemnity of the space. He even called it an orderly openness. That was the way he described it. And then, then he said this, and this is what I want you to hear. He said there was much repentance. And then he added there was also a peculiar joy. Where else are you going to find those things right alongside each other? The freedom of humility and the freedom of joy. Where else are you going to find that? Only in Jesus. That's who we are as his people. Because that's who he called us to be. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, what freedom is there given to us by you who gave himself for us? I pray for your grace to cover us and for your joy to be in our midst. Even as we gather before you, uh, receiving from your table, I pray you would communicate your grace in profound ways. Nourish us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.